Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. Okay, y'all know that I am all about decompression walks. The type of walk where your dog is allowed to sniff and wander and move her body freely and generally speaking, be a dog about in the world. Allowing our dogs this freedom of movement, this type of exercise that I think their bodies and their minds crave is a game changer when we are addressing their behavior. I firmly believe that not providing any off-leash exercise at all is producing a welfare deficit. And I don't care what kind of dog we're talking about. I think that deficit is much bigger in some dogs than it would be in others. Not providing off-leash walks to my young border collie would be a much bigger deal than not providing them to say my mom's pug. But both dogs need off-leash time in nature to be mentally healthy. I did another episode all about decompression walks. I'm going to link that for you all in the show notes in case you haven't heard it. But in this one, I'm going to talk about some atypical decompression issues that do show up. So these are issues people face when trying to provide this type of exercise to their dog. These issues have popped up a couple of times for me recently in big ways with client dogs. And that inspired me to talk about them on this deeper level, because if it popped up for me twice in a month with private clients, then it's probably popping up elsewhere. And these are probably questions that people have. So number one, is it possible that these off-leash excursions are actually doing more harm than good? The answer is always that you need to look at the subject, right? So behavior is always a study of one. And I cannot make, you know, the blanket statement that I just made that all dogs need off-leash exercise, I'm going to stick to. But I am not going to make the blanket statement that providing dog X with exercise type Y is always going to be a good idea. So for instance, if you have a young dog that is very frantic on their off-leash walks. They never stop moving. Maybe they never stop hunting. Maybe they never slow their movement down. Perhaps there's vocalizing and they are unable to eat or respond to cues in that environment. Then probably that exercise is contributing to their maladaptive behaviors at home. And what you want to do is structure that exercise a little bit more so that you see more of what you want to be seeing like sniffing or like trotting, moving with kind of a non-frenetic pace or speed. Now, again, study of one, a lot of spaniels uh, were bred to quarter. They're bred to literally pace back and forth. So if your spaniel is pacing back and forth on the trail and not really having nose to the ground sniffing, that might be totally normal for them. If your border collies are intermittently sprinting and then trotting, that might be totally normal for them. You have to look at the other behaviors at play. And if you decrease the outings and the other behaviors get better, then the outings were not helping you. If you increase the outings and the behaviors get better, then they are. It's all about 
what happens after. Okay. How do I know if I've provided decompression because the dog is decompressed, you know, if you've provided it, if the dog is able to come home and relax, there are certainly dogs for whom medication and other behavioral intervention is going to be required for them to be able to do that. And the decompression walk is just going to be piece of one piece of the puzzle, but you need to be paying attention to what the other behaviors at play are. And if you're worried, then change it for a little while. So one of my client dogs, we changed over to all long line walks in public park type of settings rather than off leash in the woods. And the dog's behavior improved exponentially because her behavior in the woods was screamy, frantic, running, hunting nonstop. And on a long line, she will sniff and she will walk around and she will look quote unquote normal. And so those walks are really helping her. So if you're not sure that the walks are helping or you're even worried that the walks are hurting trial not having them you have to look at what the results are to know the data tells you another thing that comes up is that people will say to me i can't let the dog off leash because the dog won't come back the dog won't listen to me the dog won't even eat food how am i supposed to let his leash off yeah you're totally right so here's a couple of situations you're going to find yourself in one is that if the dog has a severe deficit for this kind of exercise then you really need to figure out how to provide the exercise without needing the dog to care where you are. So that's where I'm going to rent a sniff spot that is fenced. And I'm literally just going to let the dog go and I'm going to wait for them to just be done and come back. And it is going to take a long time. Or I'm going to find a friend who maybe has a bigger yard than I do. And I'm going to do the same thing. Or maybe there's a fence to like baseball diamond or something like that, that I can do this in. Like, I'm going to find ways to offer my dogs off leash time without needing them to care about where I am or pay attention to where I am just so that I can try to meet that deficit. Because if I don't, it's this terrible cyclical problem that if I don't meet the deficit, that I'm not going to be super successful with my training, but I need the training in order to meet the deficit. So if you can find a way around that by providing the dog off leash time in an area that is safe for everybody, that's what I would do. And in the meantime, I'd really be training hard on your engagement and your attention outside of that circumstance. If there isn't a major deficit, so let's say I get a puppy, puppy doesn't have an exercise deficit puppy is new to this world, right? Puppy doesn't even need much exercise yet. So the puppy does not have a deficit. I am training that puppy from day one. I think I have been remiss in communicating to people that I don't train on these walks so that the dogs go and enjoy their walks. You guys, that's because my dogs are obsessed with training and they're obsessed with me. If I train them, they're never going to leave my side and go decompress. So that's this place I'm starting from. If you don't start there, if the dog starts not caring where you are, you got to swing that pendulum all the way the other way. So if I get a little puppy, I'm training constantly. I'm reinforcing the check-ins. I'm reinforcing every single behavior that I want to see with food. And I'm giving other cues and I'm putting the leash on and I'm taking it back off. I'm doing a ton of stuff with my puppies or my young dogs who I'm building that attention from. And in the meantime, I'm doing all kinds of other training. So I'm making this dog a training addict so that I can really bank on that. So that when I let that leash off, which by the way, my puppies are off leash from day one. And this is how this works for me is that I'm constantly training them and constantly reinforcing what I want to see. And so they never go through a period of time, usually that they have to be on leash. Then 
I'm going to be in that situation. And now, now I'm fine because now I can choose not to train because the dog will turn on the second I offer training. And then I have a dog that does keep tabs on me, does know where I am and will listen. So if I am in a, let me just reiterate, if I'm in a deficit and the dog's untrained, then I need to find a way to meet that deficit while I train the dog. If the dog is untrained but does not have a deficit, then I'm going to slowly build up meeting the needs as I build up the training. So the bottom line is that connection is imperative. You have to be on the same walk in order for this to be safe. And that does not come for free and it does not come overnight. So what you might do while you're building, while you're filling that deficit for the dog that's got the deficit and also doesn't have the training is you let them run crazy, but you also do laps around the space and you've got something really great on you, like rotisserie chicken or beef liver. I mean, something great. If the dog at some point comes up and is like, Hey, isn't this cool? You're like, yeah, it's so cool. Here's a piece of food. They take it and you tell them to get lost. You tell them to get out of there. Do not try to feed them more. Do not try to touch them. My God, don't try to touch them. Do not ask them for other behaviors. Just give them a bite and send them on their way and keep walking. And when you need to collect the dog, maybe the dog's dragging a long line so that that's easier for you. Like if you think you're not going to be able to catch them, have them on a line so that you can catch them and reel them in because it's very bad if you have to call them and they don't come and you nag them and you chase them down. That's a very bad scenario. So avoid it. They're dragging a line if you think that's possible so that you can approach the line, reel the line in, take them home without ever asking them anything. And until my dog checks in regularly because they think all they get, all that happens when they check in is a bite of rotisserie chicken and sent back on their way. That is a win-win. When that's happening regularly, now I can start to talk about more training and you can see what that looks like in the recall episode. And when I start to really truly have a dog out on these walks, now we can start going other places. Now we can really fill that deficit by getting out of this yard, out of this sniff spot and really, really working towards it. Always dragging a long line if we need to. So understand that when I talk about decompression walks and I talk about, I don't train on these walks, it's because my dogs and I start out with a good connection. If I have a new dog and we don't have a connection, I am training constantly while I'm trying to meet that need. And if I can't meet the need because I don't have the training, I figure out a way to do that. That doesn't require the training. So I hope that clears a couple of things up for you. And now let's get into some Patreon questions. The first one comes from Sarah who writes, Easy, hopefully, question. What context do you use start buttons in beyond agility? And are there any other contexts in which you've taught your dogs how to say no or to decline a cue? So let me give a little background. Start button in this context would mean a behavior the dog does to say they're ready to start agility or to start sports. I am looking for organic start buttons to show up in any context that I might be training in, period. I'm always looking for consent. I'm always looking for it. A contrived start button, like a behavior that I cue that then tells me we can get started. I do very, very rarely. And usually I'm doing that more in a sport context. Whether or not I've taught my dogs how to say no, I don't need to teach them how to say no. The absence of a yes is a no. And hint, that's a good thing for you to think about in your life as well. <laughs> the absence of a yes is a no. So I don't need to teach them 
to ever say no, because I teach them that I will honor their yes or their absence of a yes. Next one is from Kristen, who recently joined us in Patreon. They write, my question relates how to manage when a dog can't have all four of their behavioral wellness needs met due to, say, a medical restriction. For example, my two-year-old hound rescue is on exercise restriction due to heartworm treatment, and it may be extended due to an issue with the medication being available. He can't exercise, let alone get decompression walks in. We are still working on developing enrichment for him, but we're still trying to find toys he enjoys. His enrichment is mostly coming from food right now puzzles, topples, snuffle mats, etc. cetera. Uh, but there is desperation there because of having to take prednisone for his heartworm treatment. Food starts to create too much arousal. I understand from previous podcasts that deprivation causes desperation, but what do you do when a medical issue essentially causes that deprivation? So Kristen, it's a tough, tough situation to be in. Number one, I'd be talking to my veterinary team about supporting my dog's mental health medically. So let me say that again. When we cannot meet all of their needs. We owe it to them to have medical intervention that helps them cope with that time. So just like I might need to take an antidepressant through a severe loss or other kind of tragic life situation to help myself cope with it because I cannot meet all my needs during that level of grief, a dog might be owed a similar form of medical support during a tough time like this. So that's absolutely a conversation I'd be having with my vet. If your vet is not amenable to that, you should reach out to a vet that is better versed in behavior and behavior meds. So that's number one. Number two um, is I would grab a copy of the book, Canine Enrichment for the Real World, because there are a lot more ideas in there for you to access, as well as there's a great social media account. They have Instagram and TikTok, Bindi's Bucket List. We'll try to link both of those for you. That has a lot of enrichment ideas as well because food-based enrichment is a really good way to go. But I understand what you're saying about the prednisone making the dog voracious and having that be a little bit tough. And that's again, where the supportive meds come in for behavior. But also look into scent training. I'd be doing a lot of nose work. I'd even be doing tracking because the dog can do tracking if they can do a leash walk. So those would be the kinds of training that I would do. And good luck. You will get through it. All right. Next one's from Celine who writes, tips for leash biters. I find this to be a hard behavior to modify for my clients. Urban environment, apartment living, no enclosed yard, even potty breaks happen on leash on the strip of grass outside their building, et cetera. First of all, just shout out because doing behavior work in urban environments is a really tough job. The most obvious function is that it works to get the human's attention, whether they're trying to be positive and cue a drop and then reinforce that with food, or if they're more likely to go for the scold. Sometimes it's a side effect of big feelings towards social stimuli. Also like the dog is aggressing towards the handler, not directing aggression at the other dog, but not always. Aside from reinforce the dog with food for walking on leash without mouthing the leash, trying to keep arousal low and redirecting when you see the dirty thought pop into their heads, which I love. Yes, that's what I do. Um, how can we kindly and effectively modify this undesirable behavior? Realistically, many of these folks are not going to drive their dogs to walk on a long line in a more quiet, peaceful environment twice a day, although I wish, and it's always something I recommend. 
So leash binding, like you said, we need to kind of identify the function there. So if the function appears to be attention from the handler, we need to train the handler to be more attentive during other times. Number one, so teaching better connection, lots of food rewards for loose leash walking, lots of food rewards for paying attention to the owner, et cetera. If it is a redirection type of trigger, like the dog is reactive, then finding ways to lessen that reactivity as quickly as possible and potentially kind of reduce that stimulation. If I had a severely reactive dog in this situation, I might even think about like cutting the visual stimulation with a calming cap, something like that, if I had to. But in general, I want to make the behavior harder or less pleasant to do, number one. So I would be literally thinking about a chain leash for a lot of these dogs. It doesn't have to be permanent, but I would be thinking about a chain if the dog is less likely to bite a chain. There's always going to be a material that is not as fun to bite as whatever the dog is biting right now. So if a chain feels a little bit like too much, you could, you could still explore other types of leashes that are maybe not as fun to bite. For a lot of these guys, I would be providing them a toy to bite. I would literally have the person holding the leash and also holding a kind of um, French linen type of bite stick tug toy type of situation so that the dog has, especially on the redirect type of dogs, I want them choosing to bite the toy instead of the leash. And then I would really be thinking about what equipment is this dog on and why is it so easy for the dog to access that leash, right? So if the dog is on a collar and the leash is looped right there next to their face, that's going to be easier for them than if the leash is attached to a back clip on a harness, or maybe even has two points of connection on the chest and the back, because now maybe I've got two hands on the leash and the dog is less likely to bite hands or near hands. Essentially, the reason that you're having a hard time modifying it is because it has a lot of different functions. There are a lot of different ways to tackle it. And I would be working on all of those different ways. So like you said, the dog needs exercise outside of that situation. So if the dog needs to potty outside twice a day on the leash, fine, use the chain and then encourage the actual exercise to happen somewhere else, somewhere more peaceful for the dog, and then have indoor activities that the dog can do. If it is really just, I need attention, then use the toy. And when the dog engages the toy, have the person take a break and play with them. There are a lot of different things you can do. I will say I'm also not above simply removing the leash from the dog's mouth every single time they do it. So kind of like if a kid kind of, you know, I don't have kids, so this is probably going to be laughable for a lot of people who do have kids, but like, let's say a kid kept reaching for something that wasn't theirs and they, you know, or they, that they shouldn't have, but I couldn't really get rid of it. I would take it from them and put it down every time I would just take it out of their hand and put it down. And would I give them something else? Maybe because that's a juvenile behavior. That's probably going to get better. If these dogs are practiced at it, I wouldn't be giving them something else. Cause it's not a juvenile behavior. That's going to go away. But basically if my dog has something that's not theirs, I just take it away from them. Am I worried about producing resource guarding? Here's why I'm not. I'm smart enough to see the precursors. I'm smart enough to know if this is something I can get away with with this dog. I am doing resource guarding prevention in the meantime, and I'm not doing it with a dog that's already a garter, right? 
So I literally just take it. I am not above just taking it out of their mouth and continuing to walk. So like, let's say I've done all those other things. I've made the leash less pleasant to bite. I've given the dog another option of what to bite. And I'm, I've increased the engagement and I've decreased the problematic stimuli. Now I'm actually just going to take it out of your mouth every single time you do it physically. And dogs don't like that. They don't like it when you reach in their mouth and take a thing out. Of course, like I said, use your discretion. Don't recommend that if the person's going to get nailed. Don't recommend it if the dog's just going to chomp down on that leash and resist, right? But again, if that's happening, we need better management tools on this dog. Maybe this dog needs to go for a walk in a basket muzzle so that he can't bite the leash. Yeah? Best of luck. Please let me know what you try and what works. I would love to hear it. All right, next one's from Paige. Paige writes, in the self-regulation episode with Shade last year, you mentioned how easy it is to punish eating in border collies and how it would make you very hesitant with a procedure like she describes. And just to back up, y'all, if you haven't heard that episode, Shade's talking about having food in the hand and rewarding the dog for leaving the food alone, basically. Um, I tried finding another self-regulation episode that answered this, but my question is, what would you do instead? So first of all, Paige, refer to the food problems episode that I think came out after you posted this question, but I do have an episode about the food stuff and kind of what I would do smarter and better regarding food. But Paige continues, yes, there's the waiting to eat until cued, but do you have any other specific protocols you use to train self-regulation that you wouldn't, that wouldn't give you the same concerns about making eating yucky for them. So yes, the rest of the episode concerns with non-food behaviors. So there are two episodes on self-regulation. We'll get both of those for you in the notes. Both of them talk about a lot of behaviors that have nothing to do with food. I would do all of those instead of the food stuff. If it was a dog that I was worried about their fluency of eating and then be sure to check out the food episode as well. Okay, next one's from Lisa. How to do bat training or stop a big 130-pound dog from lunging out of excitement towards other dogs without using a head halter harness? The dog has joint issues. Also has stomach issues, so can't get neutered, and it's so hard to train because we can't control the stimuli in the city. Always over threshold results in letting go of the dog, and the dog gets attacked. Oh, my gosh, this is so much, Lisa. Lisa says the dog will be getting neutered in six months, but it's most likely only one factor. And honestly, Lisa, it's probably not going to change this at all. So don't get your hopes up on that one. Um, so I hate, to, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that probably won't help. If the dog cannot wear the control device of my choice, I'm going to go down my ladder of the control devices that exist. So hear me loud and clear. If I had a 130 pound dog that I could not put a head halter on who was lunging at other dogs, I would use another tool. Okay. That is probably a scenario that, and I'm going to be very clear right now. I have not used one of these in probably 17 years, but that's the scenario I might use a prong collar in now. Oh my gosh. Everybody calm down. Why might I do that? because I would have a training plan behind it. It wouldn't just be a management tool for me that is just used forever, right? So it's not about doing bat training either, which is that's behavior adjustment training. If anyone wants to Google it, it's about having a full treatment plan for this lunging issue with a professional who's there to help you. And I would not be using the prong to correct personally. I would be using it just so that I could control the dog so the dog wouldn't rip my arm out of the socket. I also wonder if the joint issues that you're citing can't be addressed in such a way that and uh two points of connection 
like balance harness couldn't be used. So that is a question for me. I understand, you know, a lot of dogs have issues that make a head halter not appropriate, but very few dogs that I see can't actually wear a harness if it's a, if it's the appropriate type of harness. I would not be using a, res, a super restrictive no-pull harness like um, one of the ones that cuts straight across the shoulders. I'd be using a balance harness. The most restrictive I would probably use is a freedom harness. So you can check out those brands. I haven't seen a lot of dogs that couldn't wear those things. But also if the dog has joint issues that are severe enough that it can't wear a harness, probably some of this reactive behavior also comes from not feeling good in the body, maybe having pain. Not, I, you say it's excitement, so that's fantastic. That it doesn't seem to be fear, but that doesn't mean that it's not coming back to pain. So I'd really be addressing those body issues, getting a management tool on the dog that I could actually use and then getting with a trainer to really, really work through this. The piece of equipment you use will not solve your problem, no matter what the equipment is. The trainer and the good program will solve your problem, um, not, you know, not the equipment. So I'd be addressing the dog's body issues, finding a piece of equipment I could use always, whether it's a head halter, harness, or prong, I don't care. Your goal is to get out of it. Your goal is to get the dog wearing something perfectly non-restrictive. And the good training program is what's going to get you there. So best of luck, Lisa. Last one this week comes from Diane who writes, is there ever a time when you choose to use a very high value reinforcer in training, obedience or agility, or does it just add too much arousal unnecessarily? Gosh, it just really depends on what I'm training, who the dog is and what their responses are. So if I'm training something very expensive, I'm going to be paying big time for it. Okay, so when I showed Iggy in competitive obedience, she knew that her payout for doing long sequences of behavior without being fed was bacon, which is probably her highest value food reinforcer. And she's starving to death, so ranking food is not that easy to do. She loves all food. Bacon, I'm pretty sure she would die for. So she knew that a long sequence of behavior eventually got her that bacon. Now, a long sequence of behavior eventually getting Felix a ball on a rope is not going to be appropriate because I'm just going to build feelings of anticipation that work against me. I have made some plans recently um, regarding Rhea of a very high value reinforcer that I will use for agility sequencing. Stay tuned. But that's going to work for her because her feelings are the right ones. There are just some dogs for whom lower value is going to be helpful for you. And then there are other dogs that it's got to be high value or it's not worth their time. So yes, absolutely. I would use high value reinforcers in training if that's what I thought the work needed to be paid for with the specific dog. And that's it for this week. Thanks everybody. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.